just reading the 17th chapter of the book of the Revelation tonight reminds me of why this book has been such a neglected book in God's canon of scripture. The language seems to put a veil behind the meaning of what we're reading and we're left to wonder what in the world does this mean? And if you're committed to a literal interpretation of the book, you are really in lost land. (laughs) And we're committed to, I think, uh, understanding this symbolically. But even in that, there's some real challenges here. So tonight I want to consider verses 7 through 18. And let me remind you that uh, John has been carried away in the spirit. We're told that there in verse 3. And he is taken on a survey of history by an angel. And he sees things that he's never seen before, and then the angel aids him and gives him explanation. This is that. You saw this. This means that. So, um, John was aided, and we're aided because we have that commentary. John is marveling. And we generally reserve that word for something that, uh, that um, catches our attention and we have an appreciation for. But John's marveling is not in appreciation for something. He is astonished. He's shocked. By what he sees, and that's in verse 16, he says, I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. What an image that is. This figure, drunk with the blood of the martyrs, drunk with the blood of the saints that have loved, loved Jesus and served him and given their life in martyrdom. And John is quite perplexed by that. So the angel comes to him and tries to help him. The angel asks him in verse 7, Why do you marvel? Why do you wonder? Why are you astonished? I will tell you the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carries her, which has the seven heads and the seven horns. I will tell you the mystery. The interpretation of this vision is designed to comfort John's fear and to help him to live in boldness in the fear of persecution, because John is writing in a time when Domitian is the emperor of Rome and persecution is a real threat to the church. So he's writing to comfort the saints who are facing some very troubling times. So this angel that gives John this message, it comes to John in three parts. I've divided this section up tonight, verses 7 through 18, under three sections. 
First, John needs to recognize the beast and the manner of his coming or the pattern of the beast. That's the first thing that we're going to look at. Second, he needs to understand what powers are actually arrayed together with the beast in his conflict with Christ. And then third, he is to marvel at the destruction that God has ordained to be at work between the harlot and the beast, and in this way, displaying God's sovereign power. So the purpose here is to challenge us to boldness, to stand for God in this evil world. The beast represents violent, worldly power that is arrayed against God and his people. This isn't the first time we've encountered the beast. He appeared in chapter 11, where he briefly was given power to kill the two witnesses. Those two witnesses, remember, symbolized the church bearing testimony to Jesus Christ. They rise from the dead, and his kingdom was ultimately crushed. In chapter 12, we learn a lot about the power behind the beast. And it is the red dragon, Satan himself. He makes war against the church, but is not ultimately able to destroy her. Revelations chapter 12 and verse 11 tells us just, in fact, the opposite of that. It tells us they, that is the saints, those who gave their lives for the cause of Christ, they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. In chapter 13, John again sees the beast, and he's doing the same thing. He says that these aren't different episodes. This is just, again, this cyclical nature of the book of Revelation where we're seeing the beast and his activities from different vantage points. So again, we see it again in chapter 13. The beast is making war on the saints. And this time he is permitted by God to overcome them for a limited period of time. Revelation 13, verses 5 through 7. And that background information about the beast fits the description that we have of him here in verse 8. Notice with me, the beast that you saw, past tense, he's seen the beast. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. Well, that's some interesting information about the beast. Listen to... William Hendrickson in his testimony or in his commentary he says this despite the havoc the beast wreaks and notwithstanding the adoration the world shows and showers on the beast God's people are safe and free from fear their eternal destiny is established what we have here is a pattern of the, the, the beast's activity. And notice how it's uh, communicated to us. 
the beast that you saw was. He was. And we say, what do you mean he was? Well, he was from the beginning of the fall. And he's been active ever since. That's what John's being told. He was. God set his love and affection upon a nation, Israel, his people. And apart from God giving himself to that nation, every other nation in the world was under the influence of the evil one. He was. And is not. Well, what is being referred to there? There's an interruption in the evil one's activity. He is not. And when the Lord Jesus Christ went to the cross of Calvary, the strong man was bound. Now, John's going to tell, tell us more about that later on in this book. But for our understanding here tonight, there was a time in history at the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ that the strong man was bound. Satan was bound. His power was diminished. And you say, well, in what way? The devil's been active Throughout church history, well, yes, he has. But think of the contrast between from the fall to the time of the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ and his victory at Calvary. The devil was active. Had free reign. He was the God of this world, the Bible tells us. But he was bound. The strong man was bound, and he is not. And what's the, what's the evidence that he was bound? Well, think about what the gospel has done from the time of Calvary to the present day. It, the gospel has gone to the ends of the earth. Christ's kingdom is being established in this world. And how is that possible? Well, the only way that's possible is that the strong man has been bound. He's been hindered in his opposition to Christ and his kingdom building. So John is told, the beast that you saw was, is not, and will ascend out of the bottomless pit. God in his purposes is going to allow the the evil one to ascend he will ascend out of the bottomless pit and he will wreak havoc in this world the closer and closer we come to the end of the present age there will there will be an intensified activity of the evil one in this world <clears throat> he will be released from the bottomless pit but then he will go to perdition. He will be cast into the lake of fire. So that's a history of the evil one and his activity and what God has purposed for him in this created world. And John needed to know that. Why did he need to know that? Well, because he has seen the havoc that the evil one has 
brought upon the world. He's seen the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And he needs, he needs to understand that the devil is not the victor here. The devil has a purpose. The devil will have his time. But he will come to utter and complete destruction. John needed to know that. We need to know that. Because at times we can think, boy, I just don't understand. I don't know. Is evil going to win out? No. So that's the first thing the angel helped John to see. But secondly, the angel unfolds the mystery to John of the seven heads and the ten horns. Notice with me, again in verse 8, The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition, and those who dwell on the earth will marvel. Who are these people who will see this and marvel? Those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life. These are unbelievers. And when was that matter settled for them? From the foundation of the world. When they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind, verse 9, which has wisdom. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. Seven heads and ten horns. John is shown this so that he might know the powers that are aligned with the beast in his conflict with Christ. And... The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. We would not know this, but in John's day, the reference there was clear to John and any of who were listening to him and were living in his day that that reference is to the city of Rome. The Seven Hill City was a label for the city of Rome. In our day, if I were to say to you, the Windy City, what city are we talking about? We're talking about Chicago. If I were to say to you, the Big Apple, what city are we talking about? New York City. Well, in John's day, the seven-hilled city was synonymous with Rome. Everybody knew what was being referred to there. The first century, the seven-hilled city was known as Rome. The mountains, you read the Old Testament, the mountains were symbolic of idolatry. Verse 10, we're told, there are also seven kings, five have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. Well, there are three main theories or approaches to interpreting this verse. Two are historical, 
and one is symbolic. So let's look at these. The first historical approach sees the seven kings as consecutive Roman emperors in the first century. And again, notice the language. John is being told, there are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. John is being told five emperors have already fallen. That is, if we're going to understand this in a historical way. Five emperors have already fallen, and the sixth is currently reigning. And who would that be? Well, is most commentators believe that John was writing during the reign of Domitian, the Roman emperor. So, you plug him into verse 10, he is... The sixth king. Five have fallen and one is. The one who is, is the one who's reigning as John is writing. And then there will be a seventh who reigns briefly. But what do we make of that historical interpretation? Well, the problem with that is that Domitian was not the sixth emperor... If you begin to count from Julius Caesar, counting from him, Domitian would have been the 12th emperor. And we say, well, then what's going on here? Well, people who have tried to shoehorn this interpretation into this verse have done all kinds of interesting things. Say, well, in that list of 12 emperors, there's three that just, there was three of them that only served about a year, so we won't even count them. Just skip over them. And all kinds of interesting manipulations that are attempted to try and make the historical facts fit what's being said here in verse 10. But try as you may, it's just fraught with too many problems. That interpretation just is unconvincing. A second historical approach is to see these not as kings, but as kingdoms. And this view says, well, what we're seeing here is a succession of world empires. And there's some legitimacy to this way of thinking because some of the visions in Daniel do operate that way. William Hendrickson, in his commentary, he lists... Five empires. First, the ancient Babylonian Empire, then the Assyrian Empire, then New Babylon, then the Medo Persian, and then number five being Greece. These are the five fallen kingdoms. And Rome is the sixth that is reigning. Okay. The main problem with this approach is not necessarily getting the five fallen kingdoms right. The real problem is the seventh kingdom, because what does it say? Five have fallen. One is Rome, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. Well, 
there have been innumerable kingdoms since the Roman Empire to the present time. And if we're going to say, okay, we're just going to uh, lump those all into one, and all the kingdoms from Rome until the present make up this seventh kingdom, well, uh, that, that seems to be a bit stretching things a bit. And then things are really complicated when you say, okay, so from the fall of Rome all the way to the present, a couple millennium, he must continue a short time? A short time? 2,000 years? A short time? That doesn't seem to be very convincing. That when he does come, he'll remain only for a little while. And if we're talking again about kingdoms, that just doesn't seem to work. Which leads us to a third possible interpretation, and that is to see this verse and interpret it symbolically. Well, that should not surprise us, because that is how we have been interpreting the book. All right? Seven is a number of completeness. Here, seven heads would be the totality of anti-Christian government throughout history. We're not looking at a particular slices of church history. What John is, is being allowed to see is the totality of anti-Christian government and empires that have been opposed to Christ throughout history. The entire phenomenon of the beast with seven heads represents the empires of history. And again, that's symbolic language. And if that be how we're to interpret this, what do we take away from that? Again, the verse. There are also seven kings. Five have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must continue a short time. Well, if these are represent empires that have been opposed to Christ throughout history, five have risen and fallen. And our God is still ruling and reigning. One is, and it's going to fall as well. This is meant to encourage us. It's meant to encourage John. It's meant to encourage John's readers. Domitian, the current Roman Empire, during John's time, was creating havoc and persecution was a real threat. But John is writing and says, you know, Christ will have the victory. There have been other empires who have opposed him. And they lay in the dust of the annals of history. And Rome will do the same. And all those empires that rise up against him. Christ will have the victory. And this fits the overall structure of the book. Remember, the dragon was full of wrath and rage against the church in chapter 12. Why? Why was he full of wrath and rage? What were we told? Because he knew his time was short. That's what we were told. 
So John is told here that there's going to be great suffering in his time, and there's going to be suffering later in church history. And therefore, there's a need for courage and perseverance. But Christians can face this conflict knowing that its duration is limited and the end is drawing near. So believer, look up. Your redemption draweth nigh. Verse 11 says that when the end comes, the church will face an eighth head. Notice with me, verse 11, The beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth, and is of the seven, and is going to perdition. One of the commentators that I have relied heavily upon in my study and preparation is Robert Mouse. He writes this, quote, He's talking about this eighth, um, this, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth. He says this, he's not a human ruler, merely through whom the power of evil finds expression. He is that evil power itself. He belongs to the cosmic struggle between God and Satan, which lies behind the scenes of human history. Yet he will appear on the stage of human history as a man. So Robert Mouse is identifying him as the Antichrist. Here is the reference to the Antichrist who will appear on the stage of human history. Verse 12 adds to the seven heads. Notice it says, The ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. Ten horns, the angel tells John. These are ten kings who have not received power to rule yet. They are to receive authority as kings for one hour together with the beast. Now, I'd say it's been maybe 40 years or so ago that there was an eschatological view that identified these ten horns as nations to make up a European Union. And at that time, we're back 40 years ago, it was comprised, that is the European Union was comprised of, ten, of nine nations, and they saw a unified, reunified Europe as the embodiment of the seventh head of the beast. There would eventually be ten nations in that European coalition. And the teaching at that time was that as soon as that tenth nation joined the European Union, that would bring about the rapture of the church and the great tribulation would follow. Well, that didn't happen. You say, is that because the tenth nation didn't join? Oh, no. No, today there are 27 nations that make up the European Union. That theory is not as plausible as it once was, to say the least. So once again, the ten horns, the ten horns are to be taken symbolically. Ten, again, is a number for completion. This time, the horns are subordinate, earthly powers 
who yield their resources and their support to the beast to do his work. In John's time, there were ten provinces to the Roman Empire. These ten horns symbolize the mighty ones of the earth in every realm. Now think with me about this. We're talking about those who are in alliance with the beast and wreaking havoc in this world, trying to subvert the reign of Christ and bring persecution and opposition to Christ and his church. They symbolize the mighty ones of the earth in every realm. That is, in the realm of art, in the realm of education, in commerce, in industry, in government, all serving the central tyrannical authority. We hear a lot of talk in our day about a new world order. And I think that that has bearing on what we're studying here tonight. With this power structure in place, the Antichrist will be able to dominate society for a brief time, for one hour. Notice verse 12. Then ten horns which you saw are ten kings who have received no kingdom as yet, but they receive authority for one hour as kings with the beast. They are in alliance with the beast, wreaking havoc in this world. During that time, during that brief time of one hour, they will exalt themselves in power. Verse 13 speaks of one unified purpose to give power and authority to the beast. These are of one mind and they will give their power and authority to the beast. And for what purpose? Why is this coalition coming together? All these, all these institutions, art and government and big tech and all that's going on in our world, it seems it's all aligned against the church, all aligned against Christ and his cause. What's driving it? For what purpose? Well, notice verse 14. These will make war with the Lamb. That's why. This is what Dr. Erwin Lutzer is elucidating in his book, No Reason to Hide. If you haven't picked that book up, I would strongly recommend you to get it and read it. He's got his pulse on what's going on in this country, in our culture, and it's alarming. You know, um, this is a general generality, but I'd say back uh, a, a generation from me, maybe even another generation f removed from that generation, I, 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 I had observed men who lived just in the, the bliss of ignorance. Something's going on with their bodies. They realize, I need to get to the doctor, but they get pressure. You need to go see a doctor. No, I don't want to go to the doctor. Why not? Well, I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear the news. I don't want to know what's going on. It's this Ignorance is bliss kind of a mentality. Like, well, does that make, does that change reality? And there's people, I think, in our day who have their head in the sand. They, they see things happening and they don't really know what's going on. And they just, well, you know, no, we need to get our head out of the sand. We need to be informed about the powers that are aligned, that are opposing us, the church, the Lord Jesus Christ and his kingdom, 
And the better we can identify the enemy, the better informed we are, the better able we are to stand against it. So, that's an endorsement for the book of the month. Dr. Erwin Lutzer's book, No Reason to Hide. All these forces are united. Government, art, media, business, education, legislators, big tech. Now, they wouldn't say they're, what's driving their opposition is war against the lamb. But that's what we're being told here. That's what's driving this alliance in verse 13. These are of one mind, and they will give their power and authority to the beast, and these will make war with the Lamb. They're all supporting an agenda. They're immoral. They're opposed to Christian ethics. They're self-evidently destructive. And we wonder how they could be supporting this and doing this. Well, it's because they're under the power and the influence and the authority of the beast. And they don't know that. They don't say that. But again, it's as if God is pulling back the curtain and allowing John to see what, what's going to happen in church history. And we now are able to learn and benefit from what John was privileged to see and what he was told about what he saw. Verse 14 goes on to tell us that there's only one possible outcome of this warfare. They will make war with the Lamb. They will battle against Him. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, for He is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with Him are called chosen and faithful. What will be the outcome? Total, unconditional victory for Jesus Christ. That's the outcome. And notice verse 14, the future tense of the word. These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them. This is not merely a prophecy, but it is a guarantee of what will happen. Simon Kistemacher, in his commentary, says this, The name King of Kings denotes sovereignty and authority. The name Lord of Lords signifies majesty and power. Every ruler, all nations, and all people are subject to him. And anyone belonging to either the angelic world or humanity who determines to fight him faces a losing battle and utter ruin. End of quote. So, knowing this, that dark days are ahead, but Christ will defeat all of his enemies, what are we to do? We are to stand firm. We are to endure. We are to persevere to the end. We are to remain faithful. And may God help us to do that very thing. But also, this is a time for sinners to surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, while time and opportunity are still with us. It's amazing how stubborn, how blind men are in their depravity, fighting against the authority of King Jesus as if you're going to win. 
you're not going to win. You will bow the knee. You will acknowledge him as king of kings and lord of lords. Why not do it now? Why not yield to him now? To the saving of your soul. You do it then, it'll be too late to do any good for your soul. So, John is to marvel, number three, at the, at the self-destructive nature that God has placed within worldly society. We're going to see the self-destructive nature that God has placed within worldly society. What have we seen so far? We've seen the beast, his pattern, and the manner of his coming in verses 7 and 8. Verses 9 through 14, we've seen the various powers that are arrayed together with the beast in their opposition and their conflict with Christ. But third, let us see the display of God's sovereign power at work in the destruction of the harlot and the beast. Verses 15 through 18, let me read those verses again. Then he, that is the angel, said to me, that is John, the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give their kingdom to the beast until the, until the words of God are fulfilled and the woman whom you saw is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. Let's see the display of God's sovereign power at work in the destruction of the harlot and the beast. Verse 18, the harlot again is the great city that has dominion over the kings of the earth. It symbolizes the entire economic cultural system that the world empires relies upon. Verse 15 speaks of the waters which you saw where the harlot sits are peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues. It's a description of the four corners of the world. This is not a localized thing. This isn't confined to Rome. This is something that is pervasive, universal. And the spread of this sinful, corrupting culture throughout the world. One writer said this, quote, Satan is building his anti-church from every nation, just as the Lord is building his true church from every nation and language. Notice with me verse 16. And the ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot. Make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh, and burn her with fire. What's going on here? The beast turns against the harlot to devour and destroy. Now that's interesting, isn't it? The world and its selfish, corrupting influence will implode within fighting. Those who embrace an ungodly culture 
should not be surprised when they are betrayed and used by it. Rebellion and lack of faith in others breeds contempt, selfishness, and betrayal. And as culture begins to embrace the tyrannical beast and the harlot, what what does society, how is it characterized? Well, there's a dehumanizing in society. The value of life is cheapened. There's no dignity. There's no respect. And ultimately, the reason the beast turns on the harlot is given to us in verse 17. Why? Why is this happening? Well, because God's ordained it to happen. That's why. Again, verse 16, The ten horns which you saw on the beast, these will hate the harlot, make her desolate and naked, eat her flesh and burn her with fire, for, or because, God has put it into their hearts to fulfill His purpose. To be of one mind and to give their kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. God has sovereignly ordained that this is going to happen to serve his own purposes. You say, well, this is strange. Well, it seems a bit strange because we're encountering this. But it's not all that strange when you begin to think about the Old Testament. God mocked his enemies many times in the Old Testament. We have a number of times where armies gathered to destroy and make war with Israel. And they were sent into confusion and they turned on each other and destroyed themselves. And God was behind the confusion to serve his sovereign purposes. You recall some of those times. And what's going on here? God ultimately will not permit evil to flourish. That diabolical union between the beast and the harlot is not blessed by God. Here is how Isaiah puts it in Isaiah 57 verse 20. The wicked are like the tossing sea. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. No peace. So there's this self-defeating principle in the heart of all ungodliness. God will frustrate and bring to naught all who rise up in rebellion against him. Derek Thomas says this at this point. He says, quote, There is no resolution of the insecurity that is at the heart of rebellion. Finding no way to defeat the lamb, the forces of evil turn on each other. It is only in Jesus Christ that fullness and life and peace and blessing are ever to be found. There's no peace in fighting against God. Well... We made it through a pretty big section of chapter 17, verses 7 through 18. In conclusion, I want to draw your attention to two statements. The first is in verse 14, where we're told again, These will make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them, 
for he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and those who are with him are called chosen and faithful. That is a pretty good description of what it means to be a Christian. What is a Christian? A Christian one who's been called and chosen, who's with Christ, aligned with his purposes in this world, and his life is characterized by being faithful to him. Our duty in these days are to be faithful to our Savior and our Lord, to take a stand for Jesus Christ as we defend truth against error and as we've been instructed over and over again from week to week from Jude, as we earnestly contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints, that's what we are to be about and not to waver in that. We're to be faithful. And the second statement is found there in verse 17. For God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind, and to give the kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. Let's not be in panic. Let's not think all is lost. Let's not think that evil is going to ultimately succeed in the end. Don't despair. God is bringing all things to their appointed end. He knows the beginning from the end. All of his enemies will be defeated and brought into subjection to his authority. All the chaos you see has been ordained by God. All who are opposed to him are following a script that he wrote before the foundations of the world. What has John been describing? Those who are aligned in opposition to Christ. And we're told, God has put it into their hearts to fulfill his purpose, to be of one mind and to give the kingdom to the beast until the words of God are fulfilled. We can trust him. We can trust his wisdom. We can trust his sovereign plan, even when we struggle to make sense of it all. God's word will certainly be fulfilled. We can pillow our head tonight on that truth. Let us pray. Father, we confess that there is mystery in your revealed word. And we struggle at times to fully and accurately interpret it and understand it. And Lord, you know my heart to give myself to rightly divide your word. And if anything that I've said tonight is contrary to your purposes, strike it from our memories. But those things that are true, those things that are accurate, may those find lodgment in our hearts and may they bear fruit. May we be those who are found faithful. May we have grace to persevere and to endure unto the end. May we be men and women of courage in these difficult and challenging days when those who are followers of you are seen more and more to be enemies of the culture. Father, thank you that you have redeemed us and that you have bought us 
with the precious blood of your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And therefore, we fully understand and acknowledge that our lives are not our own. We belong to you. So help us to dispense our stewardship of our lives in a faithful way. Help us to represent you well in this world. Help us to be men and women of courage. Help us not to be cowards. Help us not to be silent. Help us to be men and women who not only speak truth, but live truth. We thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And how we long to see him exalted and given his rightful place in this world. And one day, one day, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that he is indeed Lord. Thank you that you have in grace subdued us and given us a heart to acknowledge him as Lord of lords and King of kings even now. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.